0: America is dead. Long live America. What do you do when you wake up to discover that the country you grew up in has slowly, quietly, but steadily been taken away from you? The process of demographic and economic change in the United States has been underway for the better part of a century, yet the consequences of minority-majority status and the demolition of middle-class jobs and communities has begun to force the hand of the great American middle. How the country unravels is uncertain, but the die has been cast. And in the view of John Mark, who joins us tonight to discuss how a breakup of the United States will occur, believes setting the stage for avoiding the mistakes that led to the pernicious problems in the West can be addressed by the implementation of a combination of the principles of proprietarianism and some good old-fashioned resolve against the forces of the left.
1: Well, I'm not a crook. I burned everything I've got. Military industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostages.
2: It's been time
0: Hello and welcome to the myth of the 20th century. Today we are joined by a very special guest, John Mark. From his very recent YouTube channel Uh, but within the three or four months that he's been online he's had an amazing growth of over 30,000 subscribers Um, and when you check him out you will understand why he's a very smart guy and today we have him on to talk a little bit about the breakup of the United States that he foresees as inevitable Um, so without further ado let me introduce uh, John and then we'll introduce our other co-host but thanks for coming on John
2: Thanks very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, great to be here. Thanks again.
0: Yeah, it's it's an honor to talk to you. Um, and then I'm joined also by Hans and Hank tonight. Please say hello. Hey everyone. Hello. Yes, and if you could disentangle those voices, um, as some of the people on Twitter are unable to do, there are two people, not one. There's a kind of a running joke about that. But uh, glad you all could be here. Um, and uh, let's just get, dive right into it. So, uh, Civil War Two is kind of what I was originally thinking of how we'd call this show. Uh, that's kind of the big, scary marketing term that we could use to get people's attention. But it's a little bit more complicated than that. Um, and uh, I also, before I forget, I wanted to get a little bit of your your background, John, to talk about why you think this is such an important such an important issue that you have to even like put on this kind of costume or you have a red helmet and you go on YouTube and you make these wonderful videos. But what, what got you into this? Why are you so concerned about this?
2: Well, I think it's like a lot of us, probably like you guys as well, just watching what's happening to America. Uh, and of course, I'm a, a right-wing guy, right-wing instinct guy, if you want to use the general term for it. Um, very family-oriented, um, and I don't want to be ruled by these crazy social justice warrior people. Um, and I, I just see it reaching a crisis point. And so I decided to start a YouTube channel just basically out of I'm just going to do what I can do. I mean, and I have a kid. I don't want my child to grow up in the world that these people uh, on the left and the parasitic elites, as I call them, would create. So I said, I'm just going to start my channel and just share share what I can share. Share anything that I think would help. And one of the big things I talk about, as you know, is propertarianism. That's something I came across in the last couple of years. And I said, I think this has some fantastic ideas and I want to try to spread that. And then just warning people about what's coming in America. Uh, it's really interesting. It seems even a broad section of the larger grassroots right still doesn't understand that the right is not going to be able to win any more elections very soon just because of immigration and the way the demographics vote. Uh, So I try to warn people about that. Um, And, you know, some of the topics we're going to talk about tonight. So I'm really glad we get to talk about this. But yeah, that's where I'm coming from. I just want to do what I can uh, for our people, excuse me, for our people and for our civilization.
0: Yeah, that that's good, and, and I I ask that just because you know motivations are important, and some people are out here, you know, to sell a sell a T-shirt or, or something like that, and I think you know, there, there's people want to know this type of stuff because they want to know if they can trust you because, uh, and I, I was sharing this before the call, but his, his videos are really polished. And so I, I was wondering, you know, if there's some kind of like, you know, hook coming later on, but I, I think once <laughs> I've heard your interviews, I, I could trust you and, and appreciate where you're coming from. So thank you for that. Awesome. Um, thank you. Yeah. And, and one other thing I, I, I like about how you've kind of uh, done your videos is you have a very, um, you must have some sort of marketing background or maybe you're just aware of this stuff, but you're, you're very consistent on how you define things. And I think uh, for the purpose of today's show, I think it's important that we define how you define left and right. Can you do that?
2: Uh, That's a really good question. Yeah. And I I do have, just so people know as well, I do have, uh, I wouldn't call it a specific marketing background, but I do have a business background. So some of it is from that and some of it is just from my own study of marketing and all of that. Uh, And the defining things consistently thing, I think comes uh, just naturally to me as, as a truth seeker, but a lot of that you get out of propertarianism. Once you start to study that as well, obviously, accurate speech and defining things accurately is very important for, uh, from that regard. So um, to define the left, uh, I talk about two enemies that we have. We the grassroots right are fighting a two front war. One is against the parasitic elites and the other is against the parasitic left. And so um, I think the easiest way for me to describe the left as I think of it is just parasites. Um, And then you have parasitic elites that are parasitic just because we can't, just because they can, because they have the power to do so. So one of the ways I explain it is um, the middle class, uh, roughly, in general, needs to be the ones governing because the the middle class is the only group of people that has the, uh, the right incentives to not drive a civilization down the drain. And uh, that's because the people at the top, the elites, uh, want to be parasitic because they can, and that's how they get their maximum uh, benefit, at least in the short term. The people at the bottom, or the left instinct people, uh, get maximum benefit out of being parasitic because they either don't have that much ability uh, or because they are what, what we call in proprietarian circles the, the female instinct uh, people. Uh, rough, especially single women, single white women are a big demographic that votes left. And of course, you have your, your non-white people that are operating in a lot of racial, uh, not just solidarity, solidarity, but insecurity. And so the left is people that are operating in these instincts. And I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T, um, in his book, The Righteous Mind, but that's one way that you can describe it. He talks about moral instincts that differ between left and right. Uh, And the left is really only concerned about harm and care. And so I talk about it as an instinct. Uh, I separate it from the parasitic elites, and I talk about it as an instinct.
0: Two of my favorite videos that you did were on why the left never learns, and the other one was, I forget the exact title, but it was about power. and. The, yes. what I loved about that video in particular was you basically said the root of all power is intolerance. And this is sort of the yeah. great irony of obviously what the left espouses is about tolerance. I mean, obviously it's a huge hypocritical, you know, double standard that they push it on everybody, but they're actually extremely intolerant people. Uh, and that's the yes. basis of their political power. But I also think that one thing that you're getting at in terms of the economic aspect of the left is that they're actually, economically very weak and so that's why they they obsess over the political stuff because that's really their only shot at gaining anything or status is kind of what you're getting at and the why the left never learned. Yes. that's what they're about um, ultimately
2: yep and that's a, that's a huge that's a big this is a big paradigm shift for me in my mind because and this is something that Kurt Doolittle, the originator of proprietarianism really helped me with uh and dr jonathan hyatt and others is i used to think we can teach these people Now I realize that most of them, we can't because they're operating in very, very deep-seated instincts and psychologies. uh, And so teaching them cannot be our, our primary strategy. And we have to just go into the intolerance and we have to have solutions that hack past our weakness in the face of their desperate need to get political power, because we right-wingers are busy raising families, we want to earn by merit, and so we're not interested in going and harassing everybody else and being intolerant for political power. But that's a weakness of ours, and we have to have a system that enables us to uh, react and win against their uh, extreme uh, level of interest in doing that.
1: Yeah, I think that's an interesting, um, an interesting kind of interpretation of the notion of uh, power politics, that... I mean, when you talk about intolerance being the road of political power, I mean, what you're really talking about is there's a coalition that forms your sort of uh, political base, and then there's everybody else. And if you have a coalition that encompasses absolutely everyone, then there's just nothing to give them. It's just, you know, we live in a society. Uh, ideally, you want a coalition that, you know, they have something actually in common. They have common interests, but they also have these, uh, these sort of uh, cultural traits, um, which are not just cosmetic, but they're fundamental to the way that people interact with each other, like notions of uh, respect and loyalty and uh, of respecting uh, each other's kind of a mutual rights. And, you know, I think one of the big political transitions that we've seen over the past uh, two years or so, is that the right is actually starting uh, against all of their uh, sort of instincts and their uh, financial incentives to recognize, holy shit, there actually is a population of this country that has discernible interests and mm-hmm. is rapidly becoming uh, you know, a bare majority and uh, shortly thereafter um, an absolute electoral uh, minority um, compared to everyone else. And I see our political mission over the next, um, you know, couple of years or more as trying to engender as much as possible a sense on the right that you just need to advocate for the interests of this actual population. That's it. You you don't actually need to win some sort of a, uh, you know, a very um, abstract memoir about uh, the... Uh, god the uh, the trump line that uh 2020 was going to be about or i guess that was maybe charlie kirk um what's the difference anymore uh, about uh liberty versus uh, versus socialism like no you actually don't you need to find out this guy he's on my team what can i get this guy and his extended family and the sorts of people that are like him and i think that's you know, kind of an underlaying uh, current in uh, a lot of your videos, um, some of which I've uh, had the opportunity to watch over the past couple days.
3: I, I think that the left's obsession with power politicking as daily policy is more rooted in um, sort of a purposeful construct. The whole point of the left, and particularly the modern American left, is to basically run cover for corporate oligarchs, to run cover for Um, sort of bohemian cultural aristocrats with very little recognition of the problems they might be causing in, you know, the wider American society. Uh, I think that to a large extent, the obsession with power, the obsession with politicking, and the general laziness um, towards real economic strategic management, actual political economy, as you would conceive of it uh, for the last 400 years of sort of white Western history uh, when you've, when you've totally abdicated that in the in favor of sort of random policy assignment or random policy cause, you know, blended in with humanitarian efforts and blended in with, you know, just ipso facto, some oligarchs sort of long-term goals for some social dynamic. You think you really start to see that, um, you know, the left is not necessarily there to actually deliver anything. The left is generally there to be lazy on purpose and to deliver you onto someone else's plate, to make you easier to work with and to make you easier to actually uh, utilize for someone else. Whether is- that's whether that's a corporate oligarch or, you know, a hundred years ago in the Pale of Settlement in Eastern Europe, it would have been some kind of bizarre Jewish technocrat. It doesn't necessarily change. The general principle is that the left is there to make
1: you mendable for some power figure, some economic power figure. Which is completely ironic because, I mean, I don't know if you guys ever read the book, uh, What's the Matter with Kansas? Uh, But that was, for the longest time, that was uh, the meme about the right during especially the George W. Bush years, that these are people that deliver nothing of actual value to their constituency and solely um, affiliate with each other based on not actual um, cultural issues which would imply actually doing something to advance the ability to uh, propagate those cultural values But just the pure cosmetic, uh, you know, cowboy hat uh, republicanism. Right. I mean, mean, when you look at the consolidation of the elites between the two parties, they're almost mm -hmm. indistinguishable. So it's not exactly surprising that that's just kind of how politics was played for the longest time until the left realized that they could just rig the game and play for keeps by stacking the deck and importing a massive servile labor pool. Well,
3: the growth of power typically favors path of least resistance. So you know both parties or uh, all of these sort of general mainstream political forces in America operate the same way because it's the path of least resistance. It's the easiest to to accomplish to basically create a cosmetic, mostly aesthetic binding. To a uh, to some constituency, and occasionally you might deliver general economic policy or you know long term economic policy that helps them in some way. Um, you know, wh- one example of this I think would be um, every five to seven years, effectively, you know, the the Congress along with the President and and you know the the executive branch and oftentimes municipal governments, state governments, bureaucracies, you know, all come together and they think of a new Farm Bill. There's basically a new, at this point, you know, there's a new farm bill every five to seven years. Um, and generally, you know, those work out well for farmers, not always for the long term macroeconomic policy of the United States or the actual economic strategy for America, but it certainly is a long term boost to a particular constituency. It actually delivers to them what they want in exchange for their support. It's part of this general mismanagement trend that you know we're kind of getting at. That it's purposeful mismanagement, especially uh, on the left. And I, and I would classify, you know, most of the Republican Party as basically a left-wing party. Uh, it, it, the Hayekian worldview of I think most mainstream Republicans that sort of their core is rooted in is fundamentally a left-wing worldview. It's about turning over. the majority of your economic decision making to either a mix of abstract forces and experts and intellectuals in order to make the best decisions for you and it removes you know real leadership from the state and it removes real leadership from economic power players and even you know large conglomerations of of small economic power players
0: let's hear john's take i have a few things i'd like to say but john um what do you think about all our Theories here.
2: Yeah, no, no, agreed. uh You know, the broader points that the left has absolutely now allied with uh, what I call the parasitic elites. You could call them the big mega corporations, whatever the case may be. And of course, uh, the, the second point that was made, which is that the, the Republican Party, the politicians themselves, are now also basically the enemy of the grassroots right wing. Uh, mm-hmm. And they just throw us a bone every once in a while here and there with, oh, yeah, we're against abortion or whatnot, but they're not doing anything about immigration right. and they don't intend to. So, uh, Uh, Absolutely agreed and uh, would love to hear your take as well, Adam.
0: Yeah, I I think the reason this is happening and to sort of Hank's observation that it used to be the Republicans that were sort of ostensibly like for you know, these big corporations, and how that's shifted over to the left, especially in the tech world on the, the West Coast, uh-huh. and, and even in the financial world, uh, in New York especially, uh, to the left today. I think the reason that's happened is because prior to the massive amounts of globalization after the end of the Cold War, the primary source of productivity and wealth generation was still domestically oriented in the United States. After the Cold War ended, though, and after the huge amounts of free trade deals that opened up the rest of the world, and I won't get into NWO stuff, but I think honestly that's what's driving a lot of these people is they're actually trying to take over the entire planet. They've actually abandoned that that right-wing class that used to be supportive of the Republicans uh, in favor of basically putting the factories in the cheapest location in any place around the world. And then because the left is typically not white, or not white male at least, uh, they have basically sort of formed a very uneasy alliance with them because that allows them to import a lot of foreigners into the country to effectively lower the cost of labor, bring in more consumers, uh, and then it also allows them to have this free trade stuff that goes around the world that I think basically benefits business. And I think they've done this out of profit motivation. I mean, it's not so much that they're like, oh God, we have to hire a bunch of people of color and they're going to drag our companies down. No, they're just doing that as window dressing. I mean, if you look at the majority of the people that they hire at the high end level, they're still hiring the, the top tier people. Unfortunately, though, for the sort of white middle class in the United States, that is increasingly coming from overseas Uh, in Silicon Valley. Three quarters of the engineers are foreign (laughs) born. It's ridiculous. And so they've realized that there's more money to be made uh, as long as they're still at the top. Now, they're going to get really screwed if, you know, China actually somehow surpasses Silicon Valley, which is somewhat sort of debatable. But. I think that's the reason. I think all of this is incentives. I don't think it's some, you know, an an attempt to like put people down. It's just people are making money. I mean, look at Jeff Bezos. I mean, the guy basically runs his business off free trade and, you know, he he doesn't want the borders closed and he gets all these foreign workers to work for him and and he's doing well. Are the engineers who you know, could have worked for him 20 years ago happy? No, because they're, you know given more work to do with uh, more hours, less pay and way more competition. But I think that explains why the elite have
2: done what they've done. Mm. And it's viewed quite accurately by us, uh, what we might call heritage Americans or straight white men in America as, um, the overall effect is that they're being traitors. In our minds, they're traitors because they're no longer, they don't longer care about our interests at all. And see, we used to kind of have, and this is, I've heard somebody talk about it, I forget who it was, but uh, it struck me when they said it that uh, there's kind of this agreement sometimes between the, the common people and the elites, like the common people kind of say to the elites, we don't care if you have more than us, as long as you look out for us. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. that's that's the trade, yeah. right? Some, some people are going to have more than others. That's fine. But when you completely just start to stab us in the back over and over again, then OK, now now it's a different game. Right. And I agree with your take that it's not primarily like, yeah, we're going to screw over the white guy. I think these guys are just operating in in short-term incentives. Mm-hmm. We got to make the next quarter's profits look good. That's right. Let's do what it takes.
0: That's right. That's right. That's why they moved all the factories. I mean, it's it's the how the capitalist system works. You basically get rewarded for making more money than the next guy. And if somebody is sort of like more nuanced and wants to like give jobs to their local community. He's going to get killed because it, the incentives—it's a money rewarded system—and this is some of the stuff I wanted to get into later. Because you know, if we actually want to address some of the underlying problems here, I think it comes down to the way people are rewarded. And, and none of us here are socialists. I mean, we want to have the right incentives for people to do the right thing, but unfortunately, you know, we're rewarding psychopathy, uh, and and this is getting to the point where people are dying of opioids because they don't have any jobs anymore in Appalachia and, and other places. And so, th- this is the sort of you know, and Hans is actually a real Catholic. I'm I'm sympathetic to a lot of the ideas that they have, and this is one of the things that Catholic uh, teaching used to sort of espouse was that you know we're not socialists. Okay, we we agree that you know we want to reward people for hard work. But at the same time there has to be a fair wage that these people can have families and things like that. So there's, there needs to be a real change in how we do this and, but we'll get into that later. I I wanted to go into some of the other things that you talk about, about why what we're living in right now is not going to last because and you, and you basically foresee a either a hard breakup or a a soft landing. Can you get into why you think some of these conflicts are going to be inevitable?
2: Yeah, it's really very simple. I mean, when when the grassroots right figures out that they can't win any more elections, uh, all bets are off. I mean, (laughs) what are they going to do? Now, most of them haven't figured that out yet. And it's kind of amazing to me that people aren't talking about this. Ann Coulter is the only one that talks about this that's remotely mainstream. And she says Trump is the last Republican president. Mm -hmm. And it's very simple. It's just because the vast majority of immigrants, legal immigrants, much less illegal immigrants, are non-whites, and non-whites vote 70-plus percent left. I mean, it's that simple, and we can't hack past that because they're doing it out of identity politics. Uh, which is the most persuasive factor for them is, you know, their racial solidarity, their racial insecurity, uh, believing these lies that, you know, w- we're only less successful than whites because white people are uniquely evil and all this that the left sells them. So not only is, uh, is it getting to the point where the right is not going to be able to win any more elections, 2020 will probably be the last one if we squeeze it out, um, if Trump squeezes it out. Uh, but at the same exact time, the left is going absolutely bonkers Um, And I trace this back to in 2011, they um, made a specific decision, the Democrat Party made a specific decision that uh, they were going to stop catering to uh, working class white men, as they had been for the past several decades. And they were going to instead just go full on identity politics for non-white people. And when they did that, that unleashed the communism in the leftist mind because it suddenly gave them a bogeyman, it suddenly gave them a bad guy, the white man. Yeah,
0: so, that, that was during the, uh, the campaign for Obama's re-election, and you're citing the New York Times, I believe, uh, in, in calling that out. That was the Democratic yes, strategy. Yes,
2: probably, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and they, they talked about it, and I mean, if, it makes sense. If you're a politician, you want to win elections the easiest way possible, as I forget if it was Hank or Hans was saying it, you know, it, go for the easiest route to power. Well, that's the easiest route to power. Nobody, they knew nobody's going to stop the immigration, so might as well go for the immigrants and get their votes. Uh, and of course, none of these people are thinking about the the water boiling over, which is what is going to happen, because when the right can't win any more elections, uh, we're going to be faced with, well, we're either going to be ruled by literal commies uh, for the, <laughs> forever, yeah. or we're going to do something drastic. So that's what it's coming down to.
0: Do you entertain the notion that it's basically a racial thing, or do you think it's also more nuanced than that, is that it's, it's maybe that's part of it, but it's also about some of the principles because for example like there's a lot of white people that vote for the democrats and this is debatable but will they continue to do so when the country is minority white and will they suddenly become republicans i think that's kind of one of the biggest swing issues I- i'm fairly mm-hmm. confident you're correct in your analysis that black people are 90 percent going to vote democrat for the rest of our lives you know or at least the foreseeable future but the white one i'm not so sure about and then what do you do with these people that used to be leftists and now they're voting Republican, quote unquote, but are they really the type of people you want? And then this gets to like, okay, then you have proprietarianism. But I'm wondering if you just don't want them to have; they shouldn't be in the country at all. And so this gets into the, how is the separation going to look like? What is it? You know, how's it going to unfold? And where do you see this specifically going?
2: So that's a that's a good point, and I would actually hold out some hope for maybe we can flip a significant percentage of these white people once they start to see more and more how the non-white people treat them when they get the power, right? The problem with that is immigration just keeps, every scenario I try to run in my head (laughs) where it doesn't end up in like a civil war or some kind of a separation scenario, uh, immigration ruins it. So we cannot flip white people fast enough to overcome the sheer number of non-white immigrants that are coming into America. Uh, we just can't do it fast enough. Um, so that's why I think, uh, that's why I don't hold out hope for electoral politics fixing anything in America, at least for our interests, if that makes sense. And then um, there, is, there is, I'm not gonna say there's a 0% chance that there couldn't be some kind of a secession movement. Maybe Texas has a serious secession movement or some other state, right? Um, and there are people starting to push for that. But uh, it would have to happen fast, because even these states that are starting to think about secession, white people are have just learned too slowly. We just tend to learn too slowly, because our instinct as Western European-descended people is, extend trust, extend trust, extend trust, treat everybody the same, because we feel guilty about slavery and all this. Um, and it, we just have learned the limits of that too slowly. Uh, and so I, I'm not going to say there's a 0% chance that it could happen peacefully, but um. yeah, I, I, I can't count on it. I don't tell people to count on that by any stretch.
0: So, so Texas is sort of a, a thing unto its own, in my opinion. And, you know, we know a lot of uh, southern nationalists, and we, we know some people kind of in the northwest corner of the United States. Other than that, though, I don't really know of any significantly serious groups that have espoused in any form uh, breaking the country up, at least geographically. Now, do you envision keeping the integrity of the territory of the United States together? And then if you do that, what do you do with the rest of the people? Or do you envision breaking it up geographically? Or, or is there another thing that I'm missing here that you would you know see actually happening?
2: Um, yeah, no, I think that's really the two options. Uh, I mean, if I had to, to make a bet right now with my own money on what would happen, I would bet that there's going to be some kind of a, you could call it a civil war. It'll be more like fourth generation warfare. Uh, And when I do the analysis of that, I think the grassroots right has every chance of winning that, uh, coming out on top. Uh, And I won't get into that. But when there's a shakeout, the way it would end up is, well, either we keep the United States intact, or we um, devolve everything to the states, devolve a lot of the power that's in the federal government now Mm -hmm. to make policy, social policy, etc. Just devolve that stuff back to the states or you could go with a more creative. Uh, that would be a simple way to do it because the state's infrastructure is already set up. Obviously, uh, the government's governance infrastructure. But another way, if you wanted to get more creative, is just say, let's create different regions of the country and divide it into different nations. Um, there might be appetite for that because uh, you know once there's a conflict like that, people will there will be a huge demand for just order. Let's fix this. You know, let's stop the the pain. Right. Um, and so it could go one of those three directions and I honestly don't know which one it would go. Splitting it to the States would be the simplest way, but, um, you know, and I'm very open to people making an argument for one of those three options as being better than the others.
0: Do you think people that, uh, let's say you live in Texas, which is becoming the kind of a next California at this point, uh, would you say that? The people that vote for Democrats need to move to California, and then the last Republicans in California need to move to Texas. I mean, this is what happened in <laughs> India, basically, when they broke yeah. it up after the British left. I mean, this is why Pakistan and mm. India hate each other also, and this gets into, you know, future scenarios about is there going to be a inevitable, you know, this horribly, you know, tense peace or – I mean, it, it's mm. so complicated, and there, there's yeah. – I could give you – 20, you know, two dozen maps, you know, that have different dividing lines of the United States. And it's so much more complicated than, you know, the first civil war because of the way the regions have just specialized in different things and the cultures are different and the politics are different. It's not just a one issue thing. So I have no idea really what would happen.
2: Yeah, but that's what has to happen is we have to self sort um, and live, we have to have the right of disassociation and we have to be able to self sort. Um, and Kurt Doolittle makes this point, which I think is interesting. He says, we can afford to self sort now. We can afford to do this and we don't need to live around each other. Uh, you know, we can trade with each other. We can have one military over the entire United States. And there's benefit in that level of scale for the, for military purposes. Uh, but we don't have to live with each other. The, the thing that throws a wrench into that is that the left views us as Satan. And to the, to them, letting us have land would be like letting Hitler win a war. You know, that's the psychology they're operating in. So that's the challenge. Um, and the only thing that may end up fixing that is just hostilities. You know, <laughs> we're gonna. You're not gonna tell us that we can't do this because otherwise you're gonna die. You know, yeah. is what it's gonna end up being. The right wing says to the
1: left. And I think that's like a, a double, or it's a it's a bidirectional process. Because historically, when we've seen population movements in the past, they have been driven by conflict. There's mm-hmm. not really a large-scale organic process of uh, ideological self-sorting in human history, really, that I can think of. Um, you've seen certain uh, economic patterns, uh, like the uh, the great migration of uh, southern blacks um, up to the uh, the northern cities. I mean, E. Michael Jones uh, makes the case that you can also view that as a form of, uh, of ethnic uh, conflict uh, instigated by particular factions of our elite. Um, so, I mean, one of the big structural issues, I think probably the biggest in my view, uh, is that the divide in the U.S. is not really geographic. It's structural. You tend to see, um, even in uh, quote-unquote red states, Cities tend to be profoundly uh, more ideologically uh, leftist than the uh, than the suburbs, um, which are more uh, leftish than the uh, the countryside. And this pattern Mm -hmm. holds fractally throughout the United States. And it's really just, you know, depending on how they happened to draw the state lines um, back in the eighteen hundreds or whatever, whether your state. Like uh, Illinois happens to have a big enough megalopolis that it's able to essentially colonize uh, the rest of uh, the state, or if you're in, you know, Wyoming or something, where you know their uh, their capital votes are reliably blue, um, just as every other state capital does, but there's enough in the countryside uh, to balance it out. And I don't know how you actually get around um this uh this issue under any circumstance that um doesn't involve some very uh you know I, I don't know how you resolve it structurally like you you could have like different um you know like the pre uh one man one vote uh, supreme court decision where like essentially political power was dispersed into the countryside to avoid exactly this but in our present um governing regime like I don't see how you actually avoid things like leftist spirals if you have the combination of economic growth in cities and democracy. I think that a lot of
3: the uh, sort of uh, growth of these cities in I don't know what I would call second tier states, Oklahoma, Idaho, uh, Washington to an extent, certainly parts of New England, the South, most of it is probably done somewhat unconsciously, some of it's probably done consciously as a way of mitigating any possible future of diffusion back to the States. So if Boise, Idaho continues to grow at the rate that it's growing, for example, Boise uh, and Twin Falls will exert an overwhelming amount of influence on a state that is probably one of the reddest states in the country, if not the reddest on uh, some So in,
0: t- in 2016, on election night, um, actually, uh, somebody on this call and I were watching the same screen, and it was uh, Idaho that had
3: 85% Trump. <laughs> so I don't know if it's <laughs> the top, but it's up there. Yeah, it's up there with Oklahoma. Like Oklahoma is the perfect Republican state. I think that Oklahoma, uh, every election cycle for the last 25 years, uh, hasn't had a single county go blue, if I'm if I'm not wrong. Especially during the Obama years, they were sort of outliers, and that even even during even during you know uh, the first Obama run, there were solid red states with you know what were believed to be good red counties that went blue. But Oklahoma sort of bucked that trend, and probably Idaho as well, except for the immediate uh, metro area surrounding Boise. That was 11 years ago. You now Idaho is the fastest growing state in the country as of um, the labor, the Bureau of Labor Statistics uh, sort of business creation uh, growth numbers, which is an interesting statistic to actually look at—just levels of business creation per 1,000 residents. Um, the Pacific Northwest. And Colorado and the Dakotas have the highest. Those are also states. You know, Steve Sellers talked about this is higher standards of life, um, but they're also states that are rapidly liberalizing. Idaho, in particular, is a state that is rapidly liberalizing. And there's it's just the growth a, of the city. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you know, there's been a there's been a an efflorescence of articles, and I'll have to I'll find one of them. I'll, maybe I'll find a few. Um, in the New York Times, in the Washington Post, uh, in you know, the New Yorker, and uh, even in uh, Financial Times, so on, about uh, the, the rise of uh, sort of post-city uh, young progressive couples moving out to the countryside. There's a long piece in, in, the, in, uh, in the New York Times about, uh, I think, charted, the, they're all white, charted the course of three or four different couples and they all started in New York City, um, and they all moved and spread out to different parts of rural New England. Some of them went to rural New York, and I think two others went uh, went elsewhere. And, um, you know, they all made a point that their politics hadn't changed, that their outlook on life hadn't changed. Um, all they wanted was to move to a quieter area, but continue to uh, exert the same kind of influence that they had been exerting or at least imbuing, in the city life.
1: You want good schools. Right. Right. I mean, ev- eventually schools. Ideally, people- you want 95% good schools. Otherwise, right. you kind of hit a, a tipping point if you only have uh, one or two uh, high schools in your school district. I think this mm-hmm. is something Alex once
3: said, but eventually these people are actually going to move to Antarctica just for the good schools. <laughs> I mean... A lot of it, I think, is—I don't always buy that all of this is some larger conspiracy, but some of it is obviously being incentivized, and some of it's being propagandized, that this is a good way for you as a young progressive couple or a young progressive white person who doesn't like the city, who doesn't like Manhattan, who doesn't like Boston, uh, who doesn't like Seattle-Tacoma, doesn't like San Francisco, um, to move to a rural county or a semi-rural county or a small city, or sort of a large town, and exert your influence there. Continue to act the same way you'd act elsewhere, uh, but live life there. This is sort of the, the wider um, cultural trend that has shifted Colorado from being a reliably red state to a uh, eventually a purple state, and now a deep blue state, and has radically altered... Um, sort of the metropolitan life of, of, of uh, Colorado. 25 years ago, Colorado really didn't have much of a metropolitan life to speak of. Denver was mostly an administrative area. Boulder had a few sort of niche companies. But it was not uh, anything like what it is now. And a lot of that has been uh, sort of the migration patterns of the California white, that the California progressive white um, Typically, has a migration pattern of Texas, Colorado, uh, sometimes New England, and the South. There's a lot of them that go to North Carolina, they go to Georgia, um, they go to Tennessee, and they exert their influence on state politics there. There are some kinds of Californian whites, uh, sort of uh, the last, I think someone said earlier something about the last of the California Republicans going to Texas, being the last of the California Republicans went to Texas maybe 25 years ago, but the rest of whoever stayed behind, uh, is now leaving for Idaho is now leaving for Wyoming is going to also the South, uh, is I think also going to, uh, Arizona and trying to sort of rebuild life, uh, some kind of orange County sort of late 1960s wasp lifestyle, uh, inside of these other States, um, And it'll work for a time being, but eventually the power of these cities, even in states like Oklahoma, with the growth of Tulsa, um, even in states like uh, Nebraska and Kansas, with the growth of not only their respective capital cities, but also of of, uh, sort of business centers that favor um, more of a logistics and tech outlook rather than a manufacturing, farming, or maybe um, mining outlook, which invites a certain kind of population influx and invites a certain kind of political transformation.
1: And I think one of the concrete ways that this plays out is as we go into the 2020s in red states that now have uh the example of uh you know whatever the first domino to really become evident that it's fallen has been if that's uh texas going blue or florida or georgia or godly knows what you will see pretty aggressive uh, voter suppression um i think as the the last card uh in the uh, in the deck um in places and you know you would expect to see it happening in places that have uh uh, that are predominantly red, that are red enough that they're not really swing states, so they're able to jam things through like this, but have some blue area that is, you know, maybe in the context of a national uh, national popular vote, um, or in the context of uh, someplace where there's a Republican majority, but not a supermajority, but they have the ability to jam things through um, kind of in a uh, expedited fashion, thanks to some legislative trickery. You'll see things accelerate um, and lead to a sort of consolidation of political power on the part of uh, local elites in a lot of places. That will recur, and like you'll see places like California, which actually is already doing this, where they have their uh, their lovely ballot stuffing um, where somebody will literally go door to door and uh, come back to the precinct with a nice pile of uh, ballots that have been filled out on the behalf of supposed voters that live there um, in a way that has just uh, nuked, what was it, eight uh, Republican uh, congressional seats uh, to be, uh, the Democratic Party? I thought it was so, nine, but yeah, it, it was... It was a
3: slaughter. I mean, that's basically how um, Rohrbacher lost. And there was, was Rohrbacher and there was another woman down in uh, Orange County who both lost they're both Republicans, who uh, against this method, this methodology of, of ballot counting. And they uh, Rohrbacher is an old guy, and I think that he could see the writing on the wall. So he didn't really put up much of a fight. The, um, the female congressman whose name escapes me actually put up a fight and made uh, made a kind of a media circus about it. in California lasted about two days. And uh, you know, generally the outlook from from the state government was, well, you know, it's not illegal. <laughs> it's not. It's not explicitly <laughs> illegal under California state law. And no one in the federal government uh, filed an official complaint or investigation, so nothing happened. It could have been somewhat illegal at the federal level to have done that. It could have warranted an investigation. It could have at least publicly named and shamed uh, and ruined the reputations of the people involved. Um, But there was no federal action really taken. And the state of California has no vested interest in uh, determining that that's an illegal, an extra-legal, or unethical act. I mean, the state of California, if we call it the state of California, is effectively a state owned by the Democratic Party. It has a supermajority in the California State Assembly. Um, There is basically nothing that they propose that does not get passed. Even insane legislation like decriminalizing knowingly spreading HIV Passed unanimously because of this sort of supermajority. Whether or not you actually believe in that law, whether or not you actually care, you know, uh, the political powers in this uh, in the state of California operate under the principle that they'll stick together. They'll stick together no matter what. Occasionally, you'll see sort of inter inter rival or inter rivalries where you know one will accuse the other of sexual harassment. Kevin De basically got uh, the California State Assembly Speaker fired because he accused him of sexual harassment or of sexually harassing some random woman, even though Kevin DeLeon was being accused of a similar thing. You can see these sort of power plays play out in public every now and then. Uh, But generally, when it comes down to the line of actually voting, of actually crafting legislation, of actually suppressing Republicans in the state, well, that's unanimous support. Kevin DeLeon and Dianne Feinstein will put away their blood feud if it means, you know, suppressing votes for Brian Cox in parts of Southern California.
0: So uh, I don't think I'm alone in this call and basically writing the entire state of California off in terms of wanting to save it for me. At this point, now the the only relevance California bears on my life, I mean, there's many things. Obviously, they, they control the culture through Hollywood in many ways, uh, and the technology uh, sphere, but also um, just the the sheer size of the economy. But bottom line, I'd be happy if California seceded. And what I'm getting at here is, I, we we need to pick our battles. I mean, if we're gonna worry about California politics. Uh, we're not going to be able to worry about other things, and I think that it's just a lost battle at this point. So what I'm trying to sort of get at, and and Hank maybe sees it a little bit differently in terms of the geographic divide, may not be the way to go. But I I, I don't see it any other way. I think that's the only way we we get some sort so, of representation. And I want to know how we accomplish one. Secession without being civil war, one, you know, and what happened with the, the Civil War, uh, the first one where Lincoln basically didn't let people go. Two, how do we get the right to basically self associate, which I think is fundamental long term? Even if we get our own country, we still need the ability to form our own communities and exclude people we don't want. And then also, how do we get uh, the right to basically not support governments that we view are criminal? In other words, how do you not? have to uh like i i would i would advocate for like a tax bill of rights like if you don't feel like the government is providing you certain services i don't think you should have to support that government because it's basically a, it's a it's a protection racket at this point it's like they're basically saying you pay us or you go to jail i mean it's not a not a <laughs> question of we have representation and so i would like those three things so please discuss mm. but
2: well i can i can give you my take uh Adam, on the first one we've been discussing here, the the biggest problem is, as far as the logistics goes is, okay, how do we split it up? Because as we pointed out or as someone pointed out here, the biggest problem is you've got the cities are deep blue in the actual cities, the people that actually live there, the suburbs are 50-50 split, which means you have a lot of people that are actually commuting to work in those cities that are actually red people. Um, And then, of course, the countryside is red. And then, of course, the states are different. But all these former red states are being invaded by blue people. Uh, So basically, at the end of the day, if there's a shakeout and the right wing gets to have a say, whether it's through secession movements or whether some kind of uh, hostilities give the right wing the ability to say, "Okay, this is what we're going to do, there has to be a geographical split between, uh, I'll put it this way, we grassroots right wingers, we must hold land against immigration. Because this whole thing is the problem of immigration. Somebody told me on an interview the other day, uh, I mean this blew, blew my mind, but it makes sense. They said there are more Republican voters in California than in any other state in America. It's just they're outnumbered. What are they outnumbered by? I mean, California used to be deep red. They're outnumbered by non-white people. Right. And if we do have the white leftists, they are part of the problem. But we must – if we can hold land, some part of the land of America against immigration, we are going to be fine. And then we can implement better systems and all that. So it's going to inconvenience – no matter what we do, it's going to inconvenience somebody. And I don't care about inconvenience leftists, you know, inconveniencing leftists. They can leave. I mean, leave, whatever. And if you look at the Clinton archipelagos, if you look at a map of the counties, they are are all packed in these tiny little areas. And so you get rid of the coast of, you know, you get rid of L.A., San Fran, New York. I mean, you're basically golden if you just siphon, you know, separate them off. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, So it could happen different ways, but um, that's the ultimate goal. That has to happen one way or another. And then the question about how do we get right how do we get better government and enforce better government, mm-hmm. that's where we just have to have a better system, a better constitution. And this is what excites me about proprietarianism, is Kurt is actually writing a, a, a constitution. It just has to be more specific, more thorough, right. so that the left can't do all these end runs and run through all these loopholes that the founding fathers, understandably, did not have the prescience to uh, to, to close, because they didn't know how to do it. I have a lot of questions we for you. know how to you. fix it, so...
0: Uh, sorry, i sorry, I have a lot of questions for you about proprietarianism. Uh, one of the things before I'd like to jump into that specifically is I think you, you, you have a compelling case to sell this concept to the sort of grassroots right, as you've eloquently put it. My concern, uh, aside from the leftists, aside from the federal government, which I think are the two main problems in our country right now, uh, are the, as we've also talked about, the business elite. They are the reason why we have the sort of immigration issues we have, in my opinion, in in many ways, because they just have the money and money talks. And there has to be a way for either them to be excluded from the decision-making process and, and this is a simultaneous thing, which is very difficult, somehow keep the living standards from going into the, complete basement for the people who have lost their support because as we've talked about these big cities are economic magnets and the reason you know the the democrats can get their foothold in there is because they basically get the white women to vote for them and then they raise taxes and they spread the money out to buy votes from minority groups And they're literally injecting these people into these big cities all over the country Okay, that's got to stop. I mean, that's parasitism and that's corruption and that's just, it's just, it's an invasion uh-huh. basically. But um, the reason that money in there, there is there in the first place and the reason the economies are there and why everybody wants to live there is because there's business and there's economic activity. So if you get rid of these people who are incentivized to not agree with you, then the economy is gonna probably look a little bit like some of these depressed areas throughout the rural parts of America they are running into drug problems, and I worry about this. It's like, okay, great, you get rid of all the Eric Schmitz from Google and Apple and whatever, well, what are you left with? I mean, you've got logging towns, you've got farming towns, which are basically exposed to global markets, and I don't know how you run an advanced economy uh, until you have some of these types of people that unfortunately are not really supporting what we're talking about politically um so i think that's that's one thing like we have to figure out like how do you get the economic aspect figured out for these areas that we want to live in and i think we have enough smart people but we're going to lose a lot too and i i I would also say without going into a a more uh, older type of economy where we're doing more agriculture more manufacturing locally I don't think it's going to be possible and we'd also have to accept a little bit less advanced, you know, economic development, but I think it would be better because it would be distributed better. But I'd like to hear what you guys think about addressing the the economic problem of these big cities and these kind of traitorous business people.
2: Mm. Yeah, uh, I I can throw in uh, my two cents and then I'd love to hear from the other two guys as well. Uh, The problem is not obviously that they are good businessmen. The problem is that as you eloquently put it, they have uh, short-term financial interests that screw the people over. So how do you stop them from doing that? And then the second problem is how do you stop them from owning the government? Because they just own the government at this point. It's that simple. Uh, The the politicians do their bidding because they can buy the politicians. So I won't go into detail, but proprietarianism has a solution for that, that it makes it impossible for uh, anybody really to buy the politicians. Uh, in order to pass parasitic legislation because it makes it impossible to pass parasitic legislation. Okay, so I'm let, going let's into get detail. into that then. But and that's, and I'm uh, going to push you a little That's bit one harder, part though. of the solution. But
0: yeah, and, and g- explain what proprietorism is, and then I'm going to ask you, okay, then why are these guys going to sign on to it? Because I again, I think we benefit, but the thing is, like, what's the benefit yeah. to these other people? And oh, I don't, I don't they,
2: they they won't any. sign on to it willingly. They won't sign on to it. Right. We would have to. Right. Okay. We would have to say no. This is the way it's going to be, yeah. or else everything burns. Okay. <laughs> you know? Well, the, that's you the, what the grassroots side is going okay, to have to say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right,
0: but, so, but please uh, uh, give an is introduction not to this that stuff.
2: would come. Uh, yeah, that's the first thing I always have to clarify. This is not something that we, you know, are saying would come. Uh, through our p- current democratic system. And we're not telling people to go start a civil war, but we just think it's deterministic and we have to be ready with something better. And so uh, that's, that's what it is. And it's a rule of law based solution. It's just basically a better constitution and rule of law that enforces reciprocity. In other words, it gives the people recourse against any form of parasitism. And there's a lot of, form of parasi- forms of parasitism that we don't have recourse against right now. And then there's was a... Um, I, I call it a fail-safe, it's not really a technical term, but built into, you could have different forms of government with proprietary law, um, but one of the things that you would definitely have if you had any kind of d- democratic representation or houses of government is um, any legislation that is passed would have to uh, be vetted by the judiciary before it was passed, and the judiciary would ensure that it does not uh, violate a very specific definition of reciprocity uh, that it does not violate a non-parasitism principle, which we have a definition for, and so um, as long as you at that point, as long as you can keep your judici- judiciary clean, uh, which is a one-front battle, um, then you're good to go because you've just eliminated the whole system we have right now, which is where the politicians are completely bought and paid for by the big money people in order to it enforce their will which is parasitic upon the people in various ways so that fixes that problem if you can keep your judiciary clean that's the the basic gist of it Um, and there's more to it as well but that kind of relates to what we have just been talking about
0: so this word you use reciprocity uh, can I try to put it in terms that I might understand and then you tell me if that's right or wrong sure absolutely Okay. Uh, to me what I'm hearing is like you don't get to take my stuff is basically what that means Right? Yes. So and no stealing is not like just, law number one. Yes.
2: And not just physical stuff. Propertarianism has a much broader definition of property and things that people value, so that's a big part of it as well. But yes, go ahead.
0: So it's 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 a reciprocal agreement. It's a transactional requirement for any interaction, basically. It's like there there has to be a I don't know if you'd literally have signatures involved, but at least there wouldn't be a dispute about it, right? There wouldn't be like, okay, I, there's, I mean, in current, in our current system, I mean, you can actually sue people for damages, but I mean, it's very costly and difficult. And so that's partly another question I would have. It's like, how do you streamline this? Because, you know, right now you can go to small claims court. You could sue somebody for, you know, disputes as petty as they may be. Um, but it, it's just cost prohibitive to do so. Time, money. Uh, understanding the dumb legal system and getting a fair ruling and then they just make some really awful decision that is not fair and so you have arbitration and things like that but um, I mean this sounds to be honest this sounds like nice but it sounds also very difficult to do so what are some of the specific proposals that you have seen that would make this better than what we have?
2: Sure I think the simplest way to answer that without going into too much detail I just encourage people first of all to just go watch my video um, Parasite Proof Government uh, which explains like the basic definitions that we're using. And so I won't get into all of that here, but I think the simplest way to answer it is basically what it does is when we think of rule of law now, our rule of law in Western civilization is actually really good compared to most places, but we still have a lot of just arbitrary stuff that the judges can do, right? Uh, they can strike down something just because they want to. Uh, what proprietarian law does is it's very limited. It's just law that is limited to enforcing reciprocity. In other words, deciding just like you were pretty well describing pretty well does this interaction, does this transaction between an individual or groups violate the definition of reciprocity that's very simple, it's a few points, anybody can understand it, if you read it, it makes perfect sense, uh, you know, to anybody's common sense mind, yeah, that's a reciprocal transaction, and if any of those uh, parts of the definition are missing, it's not, and somebody's going to get pissed, and there's going to be a retaliation cycle that starts. So it basically reduces the judiciary to having no discretionary power whatsoever, uh, and it's just, is this reciprocal? And then it gives the people power uh, to come into court and saying what and say what this person is doing or even what the government is doing or, or what the government is proposing to do or what uh, this corporation is doing is, uh, is violating reciprocity and it is parasitic upon a form of property that I value and I can demonstrate it, that it is property because it meets the definition that's set forth in, in the legal code, in the, in the Constitution. And so uh, at that point, you can have damages. So it's very similar to why do people sue uh, Chevy Motor Company wh- if they put out cars that have bad brakes and it starts hurting people? Well, they sue people because it's profitable, because they can get damages. So that would be the same thing uh, here is the people have recourse. And um, if someone is found or a group is found, a company is found, whatever it is, to be operating um, in a non-reciprocal manner, in a parasitic manner, uh, they have to pay damages. And it just expands that whole concept uh, to a greater extent than what it does now, and it limits the judiciary from doing all of this uh, arbitrary decision-making that they're able to do now, because it has very, very strict definitions of what they're doing, which is just enforcing reciprocity, natural law.
0: Okay, so is, this... It, go ahead, Hank, please.
1: Well, uh, I don't know, this this might be kind of a, a digression, but uh, some of the, the premises here I mean, I've looked into a little bit of this stuff, and it doesn't seem at all distinct from just traditional um, kind of, uh, uh, yeah, obligate like uh, the moral case as opposed to uh, empirical case uh, libertarianism. I mean, when you when you there's kind of an adage in um, like political science or like kind of legal philosophy um, that you know. Whenever you come up with one of these overarching um, concepts that, like, well, if everything is property, then nothing is property. There's no, like, distinction there. If everything is through the lens of this, you know, reciprocity, then nothing is. There, there's, like, 500 years, depending on how you want to count, of English common law that was effectively the best minds of their generation uh, until very recently trying to do like exactly this project of having specific legally colorable uh, obligations and rights and determinations about exactly what violations are uh, enforceable through what remedies. And it actually works fantastically well for ninety nine percent of cases and the remaining 1% ends up being these things in the fundamentally political arena where you like frankly don't get to wave your hands and say you know this this violates a property right or this doesn't violate a property right because the definition ends up being regardless of how frankly autistic you are about specifying these things it's possible to stretch words like in a in a functional sense like this is empirically true like you can stretch these things to their breaking point and beyond and if the underlying power structure is copacetic with that action then it sticks and that becomes positive law that then you just have to uh, operate according to that framework like you see libs trying to get these sick owns, um, all the time in things like, uh, like gun control debates that, well, you know, I have a right to feel safe. I have a right to safety. Like I have a, like your, uh, your high capacity magazine is an attractive nuisance. They like to dress things up in these like very picky, uh, interpretation of particular torts. And, you know, Frank, I don't, I don't see anything. In this notion of uh. propertarianism, that's either novel or useful, um. compared to just saying like you know, libertarianism, probably like we should go more towards that. And I'd be happy to hear um. your uh. your uh, response to that.
2: Uh. well, that's it's interesting. We we hear variations of what you're saying there, not in the sense that there's nothing new in it, because I think when people dive into the actual specific definitions, um. I mean, I certainly thought there was something that I had never seen expressed that way before. Um, but in the sense of what people's minds immediately do when they hear like the, the high level overview of it is they start going, how does this exactly work you know, in, in the real world? Uh, and so what sometimes what people are doing is they're trying to go down that route without actually studying the definitions that propertarianism has. When I look at the definitions, I say to myself, that makes perfect sense. So for example, if we're talking about a reciprocal um, transaction. It has, has to meet certain criteria. It has to be fully informed. In other words, nobody can lie or lie by omission. Neither side can do that. Uh, uh, it has to be voluntary. It can't be one side forcing it on the other. Um, it has to be productive. It has to produce some kind of a benefit for both parties. It has to be free of negative externality. In other words, it can't uh, impose a cost of some kind on a third party that's not even party to the transaction. So the government and the corporation can't do a deal for the government for the corporation to dump all their waste uh, into a river because that has a negative externality, a negative cost on somebody else. So uh, this is already done in our business contract law. In,
1: yeah, that that's in, just a huge statement of contract law.
2: Exactly, exactly. But it 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 extends it out to. When you extend the definition of property, then and this is where people—I see what you're saying. People get into a little bit like, well, can't can't the left use this to say, well, you know, my welfare benefits are property? Well, no, because it doesn't meet the definition. If you look at the specifics of the definition, um, it it doesn't it doesn't fly. So what well, I you mean, said, I think yeah, was a I, I active... can
1: definitely construct something where it does. Like, I mean, pensions exist, like on behalf of private parties and on behalf of public parties. Mm-hmm. Like yes. that's that's like a straightforward uh, example of like a grant of a, a property right that can be abusive if it's granted to uh, you know the uh, the Illinois uh, union rep who worked exactly one day as a uh, a substitute teacher and as a result um, got a, a several million dollar cumulative uh, state pension. Okay, so that, that doesn't
2: meet that doesn't meet the definition though because the definition of property and proprietarianism is. It's something that is invest uh, that the party can demonstrate they've invested in, so that's dubious because they haven't really inv- They worked one day. Uh, number two, that they have to demonstrate a willingness to defend it, which uh, in that case it would meet that part of the definition because they're obviously going to try to defend their their pension. And number three, it has to be not obtained by imposing costs or parasitically, and it doesn't really meet that definition either like because literally it everything imposes one day.
1: costs, right? Like you, you like the question is always whether the payoff is is worth it. Like you can have um, things like efficiency rules where you have uh, you have sort of global um, global rules, and this has been a right wing right wing argument in in the case of things like monopoly law um, for forever. That you can have um, you can have cases where okay, I know that I'm going to lose money on some proportion of these. Or that uh, this is going to be abused in some number of cases, but it's literally more cost-effective for me to allow that to happen than to actually try to stop it. So that's the whole argument for uh, things like universal basic income—that you're going to be writing, you know, twelve k a year checks to uh, David Rockefeller. I think he's dead, but whoever his heirs are, um, but like it's worth it because. You no longer have to employ a bunch of cat ladies to make sure that uh, you know you're only spending EBT on uh, non-prepackaged foods. So, like, I I really and I know we have other things to talk about, so I don't want to belabor this. I want to derail this this, whole um, secondary and primary literature on these ideas. John does uh, do a pretty
0: good job on his channel of going through actually some of the more specific issues here, Uh, but these are good questions, Hank, and, and I have some of them too. Yeah.
2: Yeah, they're good. And I I don't want to discourage people from asking these questions. Uh, I, what I like to do in a context like this is take it back to 30,000 foot view and say we have to have something way better than what we have now. Yeah. Cuz our system now yeah. is totally totally broken. Right. And so if even if we improve it like you were saying, I think it was Hank you were saying, oh, you know, it works 99% of the time, well that's a hell of a lot better than what we have now. <laughs> you know, or even if it works mm. 78% of the time, it's going to be way better than what we have now. Uh, and so, I just encourage people to check out the the uh, you know the content, and um, you know, make up your mind for yourself. Well,
0: I, I have actually a really quick proposal for Kurt and and yourself if you're working on this in in depth with him. Um, that we did a show with some of the guys over at Rebel Yell on intentional communities versus colonies, and re- regardless of what mm-hmm. that you know, differences. Basically what we're getting at is, okay, how do you go and form a community that works for you? And so we went through actually quite a few examples of this. And what I would propose is uh, there should be somewhere in the world a group of people that try to live by these propertarian principles and that's really going to be the where the rubber meets the road as to whether this produces some of the things that we're hoping it does um and obviously you do need to have some thinking before you just jump in because it's very difficult to do this but uh that was my quick proposal. Um, I had a couple questions, though, in terms of because absolutely, you know, as you point out, abs- which is absolutely correct, we don't want to have the repeat of what the United States has turned into. And ultimately, I actually don't think that's possible. I think civilizations go through cycles, and I think we're going through the nadir of one right now. But the the goal is obviously to do a better job than what you had, you know, before and. I think uh what we specifically need to address is one don't let I mean if we if we even have democracy maybe just get rid of that altogether maybe have something else but mm-hmm. if you if you have democracy we, we can't have this let's import voters and then displace the people who are there problem anymore so how do you Absolutely. address that with proprietarianism uh and then also number 2 which is my you know big concern um with what I see now in the United States is how do you address, I mean, because libertarianism has no answer for this, by the way. So if you guys are distinct from that, I'd like to hear what the difference is. How do you address the somewhat, regardless of the corruption uh, involved uh, and uh, regulatory capture, I do believe there is isn't a sort of inevitable process whereby, especially in our highly technological, highly cheap transport, high, highly cheap, we're um, just cheap, Uh, communication technology, I think it's inevitable that you're going to have a Jeff Bezos and a Michael Bloomberg basically taking over everything because these guys are are very good business people. They know how to make the deals and they end up owning all the capital. So the capitalism, capitalism's result is basically you have robber barons running everything because they're just the most productive people and they have no real incentive to share the wealth. And so what I would like personally, and this has nothing to do with what you want, but I'm curious to see what, you know, the goals are here and if it could address some of this. I would like what we've kind of talked about with another guy, he calls himself the distributist. The distributist model is basically you have capitalism, but it's a widely distributed form. So you have kind of the small, you know, baker and shopkeeper, you know, main street kind of type thing. And obviously it's difficult to produce, you know, Boeing 747s, you know, in a little you know, corner shop, but the idea is that you don't have these mega corporations running everything you have local manufacturing You have local agriculture which gives the normal guy a shot And he can have all the right principles of being hard-working and everything like that And it may not be quite as productive, but at least he has something to show his wife and we have <laughs> stable families again so those two things one importation of enemy voters into having a more equitable economic system? Like, how do you address that with proprietarianism?
2: Good question. The first thing I'll mention is something that a word that Kurt uses all the time and we proprietarians use all the time, which is sovereignty. It is The basic idea is you have to have a group of men that is able to defend each other's stuff. Like you were saying earlier, don't take my stuff. I mean, we can, you know, dicker about the, or bicker about the exact definition of property, what it should be, but be, we all understand at a basic level, don't take from us what we value. And so that's what the grassroots right is going to have to do in some way, shape or form is get together and defend their stuff and say, no, you are not going to invade our country with a bunch of third worlders. You're not going to do this. You're not going to do that because it steals from us. It parasites upon us something that many things that we value. So that's that's number one. I think that's an kind of an obvious point, but um, so in th- the context the of like voters,
0: like is there even voting anymore, or like how do you avoid this problem of basically you, Democrats yeah. handing out sinecures to people that don't yeah. even <laughs> earn anything, yes. and then they just vote for them? I mean, it's exactly what happened in the California and yes. increasingly in Texas. I mean, it's it's absolutely yes. criminal what they're doing.
2: Yeah. Oh yeah. So so number one, once you once we get some land and we we are in charge of that land. Basically, what you can do is, I mean, you can have different models. You can say, uh, all right, we're going to have a king. And the king just says, no, you can't do this, you can't do that because I don't like it, Okay. period. Or we can have a group of men that does the same thing. No, you can't do this. No, you can't do that. Mm -hmm. But then once you try to to start to enforce non-parasitism, which is what we're really trying to accomplish, uh, at scale, you have to have rule of law. And that's where, Kurt's, you know, that's where I keep coming back to. Kurt Doolittle has done the most thorough job that I have found of anyone of actually trying to put this in law in a way that is pretty close to f- uh, foolproof. Okay. Um, because you can just have arbitrary decision after arbitrary decision, but where that breaks down is, okay, what if Jeff Bezos owns everything and he just buys the people to make the decisions? And mm-hmm. how, you, you have to have a system to stop that. So I think I described earlier the system, uh, the way the system works uh, under proprietarianism, would stop it if you had democracy. You don't have to have democracy, but you can. But if you do, you have to have this system to where everything's vetted uh, by the judiciary to make sure it doesn't violate reciprocity. Will it work 100% perfectly in practicality? Uh, You you never know until you do it, but I can tell you it would be light years better than what we have now. So uh, you have to have rule of law at the end of the day. And also, I talk about the the uh, aspect of selling it to the larger grassroots right i mean us on this call we're outliers we think of ourselves as normal but the average grassroots right person um, if we try to sell them like a monarchy right we know the incentives for that are much better than what we have now but they're going to be like oh no monarchy's bad we want the constitution okay so we got to have a better constitution i think we can sell that to them let's have a more foolproof constitution that we can sell and then we can tweak it as we go, but we're, we're going to have to have a group of men that's like, especially at the beginning, if you start to trying to do this stuff and importing millions of people or whatnot uh, from these third world countries, we're just going to say no and we're going to punish you. So last point I'll make, because uh, I don't want to ramble too much, but um, the nice thing I like about propertyarianism is let's say we have, you know, we have land, right, and it's 50 years from now and things are going pretty good. And then people start in with this thing. Okay, we need to bring in people from these third world countries because we need labor or because we feel bad for them or because you're evil if you don't or whatever. How do you stop that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, if you have a king that's a good king, he can just say no. But what if you have a crappy king? Or what if you have a king that doesn't care? Or what you know, What if you have a system that starts to allow this kind of thing? To me, propertarianism nips all this stuff in the bud because... A, public figures in proprietarianism are not allowed to lie blatantly. So they can't go around saying things like diversity is our strength because they'll get sued and they'll lose a lot of money. Number two, uh, the any person can, can go into a courtroom and say, listen, whatever this person is proposing to bring in, uh, let's say 500,000 refugees, uh, this imposes a cost. This violates reciprocity. It is parasitic. Why? Because one of the forms of property that we value is uh, the average, uh, you could say our genes or you could say uh, the average, uh, the the human capital of our nation, which can be roughly measured by the average IQ of our nation. These people have an average IQ of 85. Our average IQ is 100. This is going to produce more crime and then you can go down the line of the Mm. types of parasitism that will occur from that and you have recourse in court. Now, again, will it work 100% perfectly? I don't know, because we haven't done it yet. In theory, I can see how it works in my head. And I know that you at least have recourse in court, whereas today we have no recourse whatsoever. We're just at the mercy of Bezos. (laughs) So that's that's my rambling answer to that.
0: Well, what do you think about the economic part? Because, again, this is the sort of critique of libertarians and Ayn Rand and people like that. It's like, okay, great, you have everybody, you know, living under captains of industry, but what about, you know, the normal guy and Mm. what's, I mean, it's not even normal people anymore because if you look at the requirements to compete at the top level today, I mean, you got to be in like the top five, percent 1% to even Mm. get anywhere in terms of wealth creation anymore because it's so globally competitive. And so I Mm. think we're we're either going to end up, you know, with just a, a massive, die off of people that can't make it, or we're going to have some other system. And I don't know what's ideal, but I'm not necessarily hearing any particular way that this would ensure having what, you know, we probably would all agree which was better, which was like 1950s America, where the guy could like go out, raise a family on a high school education and come home and play with his kids. I don't necessarily Mm. see how that would work with proprietarianism. I I'm open to it, but I'd like to hear specifically if you have anything on that.
2: Sure. Just a couple of things, and there, this may not be a one hundred percent solution to what you're addressing there. Um, and I've, I'd be interested in hearing Kurt's uh, take on sure. the part of this that I'm—I don't feel like what I'm going to about to say is going to solve. But there's a couple of things that will definitely improve this massively. Number one, I probably don't have to tell you guys this: if you get rid of the bankers if, from the bringing money into existence process,
0: sure. Sure.
2: all of a sudden you're you're re- literally redistributing billions and even trillions of dollars from bankers who just sit around and bring money into existence by typing numbers into a computer and collecting interest on it. You're distributing that to the people. So that's going to alleviate a huge amount of the pressure that's on the average guy. Uh, Secondly, you stop the immigration and the parasitism that happens through that, and you stop the social justice warriorism and the welfare state and all this. That's going to alleviate a huge amount of pressure on the average guy. So Mm -hmm. they're not going to care as much if Bezos is rich. Uh, a lot of the emotional angst is going to go away and life is going to be a lot more comfortable for the average guy. The third thing I would point out is that proprietarianism, um, one of the great things that it does is when it by expanding the definition of property uh, from just physical stuff to uh, things that are commonly owned, uh, the people will have recourse to, uh, for example, if Bezos just wants to outsource all his labor and then bring in his goods uh, from overseas uh, cheaper, well, we can. We have legal recourse to say no. We're not going to do that because that's parasitic upon our our people. They, you know, they're losing their jobs. Right. Or you want to import a bunch of Indians? No, that's parasitic up- upon us. We are the people. You can't do anything that's parasitic upon us. Okay. Uh, and so, um, so could
0: you have a tariff? Could you have you know import restrictions? Yes. Yeah. Okay.
2: I mean, yeah. some of what Trump is trying to do, but you'd actually ha- actually have a legal recourse to, to come in and say, listen, this does not meet the definitions of what we need, how we need to be treating each other. Bezos can't do this. So I'm not saying that would solve the Bezos problem, as we're calling it, 100%, yeah. but those three things would improve it drastically. And, and I can already
0: hear the counter arguments because, and this is how they got free trade passed, it was like, we're going to give you free, you or know, not free, but we're going to give you cheaper products you know walmart is the greatest gift to poor people is the stupid line i've heard all over republican <laughs> circles because it gives people lower prices i'm like well okay what about the factory that used to make those shoes and you know televisions yep. even I mean, believe it or not there was television manufacturing in the united states that's all gone and great walmart gets to sell it to you from korea now but uh what about the guy who's on ebt and, or ubi and i'd like to maybe talk about that if, you, if we have time but mm-hmm. i won't interrupt other you know hans and hank if they have questions but Like this, this is the counter argument they give you. They say, Hey, you know, you're being parasitic with this tariff because that union worker is not very competitive. The Japanese guy is better, so let's give it to him. I mean, I can hear the counter argument. So, what ensures this is not going to happen?
2: Well, at least it, it, what it does is the system gives the average guy a voice uh, through the legal system to say, No, you're doing something I don't like. Now, when it gets in court, would the other side bring out that argument? Sure, but at least the average guy has a voice. Where today, the average guy doesn't even have a voice. I mean, Bezos and his, like, just do whatever the heck they want. They buy yeah. the politicians and nobody has a voice anyway, and then you end up with a civil war because it just gets unbearable. So the courts are so open. So at least you have okay, yeah. All right. And That's then right. if you want to choose cheap Walmart stuff over your people having jobs, okay, then you can choose that. But at least you, <laughs> you know, under under that system, you at least have a choice and a voice uh, rather than just having everything dictated to you by parasites.
0: Yeah. All right. Hank Hans, what do you guys think?
1: Yeah, I've always viewed kind of uh, constitutions and uh, uh, legal constructions in general as more descriptive than prescriptive. Um, ideally, mm-hmm. you have kind of a alignment between uh, the words on the page that people can look up and what actually happens, and all too often that's not the case. So you know, I think uh, Adam's point was well taken um, before that. I would I would love to see a, a community um, attempt to uh, put in these or I mean, frankly, any um, chosen um, chosen principles into practice. Intentional communities usually. Uh, crash and burn, but they always do so in kind of interesting ways that uh, tell the rest of us something about how societies operate. So, you know, mm. I, I wish you the best yeah. of luck, I guess.
2: You know, that, that's, I mean, that's an interesting point. I, I honestly doubt that we'll have a chance to do that because everything's moving too fast. And the other point I would make too is when I see this, this is just an extension of what Western civilization has already done so well that we take for granted. You go to a third world country, I mean, it's just parasitism, parasitism, corruption, right and left. Nobody's honest because they can get away with it. It's just so Western civilization is already a huge anomaly because we've already done rule of law way better than anybody else, except maybe the Japanese. Uh, And this extends it. And so sometimes I hear people saying, well, rule of law is not the solution and I get that. I mean, it's easier to kind of understand, you know, just a monarch or a group of people just making arbitrary rules. But at some point, your arbitrary rules have to turn into some form of rule of law in order to rule at scale. So then you're back to the same problem of how do we make our rule of law better? So if somebody can propose a better way than proprietarianism to make our rule of law better, uh, you know, I'm all ears. But uh, it's not like we're talking about things that Western civilization, I mean, some of it is new, but it's really based on what the biggest secret of our success that we've had so far, which is rule of law. Um, We've just done it better than everybody else. And we suppress more parasitism than everybody else. And this just takes it to the next level. So then my next question for someone who says something like that is, so what's your proposed solution then? And it usually just comes back down to, well, we just got to get in charge and make the rules. And then we're back to the same thing. How do we we, uh, make the rules into a system (laughs) that can be enforced over time? And that will last a long time. So you know,
3: in, in my on the subject of constitutions, you know, to me a constitution is really some kind of um, stricter codification of a mix of your sort of general um, generational and demographic outlook and your informal and formal institutions. So the informal and formal institutions of you know colonial America were incredibly strong. It was an incredibly robust place. England was an incredibly robust place. England was so robust that it could, you know, institutionally withstand civil war after civil war for, you know, a very tumultuous sort of 200-year history as they were getting down to the very fundamental ideals of what rule of law is and who exactly determines rule of law going forward. If you don't have strong institutions, and if you don't have a, a strong um, demographic outlook, and if you don't have you know particularly strong generations or chain generations, multiple generations of people who are um, vibrant who who actually understand how to accomplish goals, who actually understand how to make something, who understand how to fall back on to the basics if need be. If you don't have all of these elements together, a constitution is meaningless. Um, and constitutions are the product of all those things as well. So I, you know, I'm know, i more of a, of, a, of a, I guess, a functional structuralist. Uh, mm-hmm. And to me, um, structure is far more important than sort of looking at uh, something like a constitution. The actual structures of your institutions and the actual structures of, of your day-to-day life um, I think, are far more important and should always be the focus as opposed to codifying things in a constitution, which seems like uh, almost as, something, as if something you would do at the, uh, once you've hit some level of zenith in your institution building. It's almost like celebration. It's a celebratory act. You know, now everyone on the planet has a constitution. It's sort of the, the mission's of the United States and others to build constitutions for people, Uh, and it's ridiculous, you know, you're you're giving out constitutions to places that don't even have public accounting standards, no one even Mm -hmm. knows how to to balance a a municipal checkbook in half of these countries with constitutions, Mm -hmm. so it's completely meaningless. And it's not necessarily Well, I limited. don't agree.
0: I don't think it's meaningless. I mean, how many times do we all cite the Second and First Amendment on in our daily lives, if not this call? I mean, I think there's some significance. Now, do we know the entire Constitution by heart? No. Most people don't even know what the, the Third Amendment is. I actually don't remember. Uh, something about soldiers and quartering or something like that. But, you know, <laughs> things like this are relevant. They're not irrelevant, is all my, I'm saying.
2: And I would just add that uh, in the case of white people of Western European descent, we already have that largely in place. I mean, it's not perfect by any stretch, but we build very good institutions. I mean, that's our whole strength. Our weakness now is these, these loopholes, uh, it's probably not the best word, but these holes in what we have that have allowed the left to come through with like the 1965 Immigration Act, the 1913 Federal Reserve Act, uh, women voting, which really skewed everything. Um, so w- our problem is not the ability to build institutions. And by the way, Kurt Doolittle says uh, a little bit differently uh, worded, but the same thing you're saying, which is he recommends different types of government for different groups of people, depending yeah. on their level of development, because you're exactly right. You can't just throw the the, the U.S. Constitution at Liberia and just expect it to be like the U.S. because the people are not there. But white people of Western European descent are pretty good at building institutions, and uh, now we have to close our loopholes. And that's where I think, you know, I hear Kurt's uh, voice echoing in my head where he says, uh, "We what we have done in Western civilization is we have incrementally suppressed various forms of parasitism, And our rule of law can adapt quickly because it identifies a new innovation in parasitism and says, okay, no, you can't do that. Uh, It comes into court. And we just have been blindsided in the 20th century by the innovation of lying at a mass scale through mass media and these other things that the left is doing. And so proprietarianism is an attempt to close that loophole and those loopholes through a better, more thorough, more precise constitution and rule of law. And we can argue about whether it's perfect, whether it does the job uh, greatly. I think it do- is, is the best thing I've come across uh, by a pretty wide margin. Um, but I think it's a great point. You can't just have a constitution that your people have to be there. But not, the white people of Western European descent we're here as far as our ability to build institutions. We just have, clo- have to close these loopholes that our enemies have been waltzing through.
0: I, I agree with all this. I, I think Hans's point is correct about the people are kind of important, I, but I also want to support you, John, in saying that and, and the observation that the rule of law is actually something we kind of take for granted. But it actually, in, in my opinion, yes. and, and yours as well, it has been responsible for a lot of the. Prosperity in addition to the people themselves, obviously. Uh, but I think it, it the reason it's valuable is because if you look at how a country like uh, Mexico works or Africa or pick uh, i mean in united states is very corrupt by the way so I, I used to not think that as much but it's it's becoming more clear to me that the way the corruption works here is very much more subtle but it's an attempt to get around the idea that corruption is bad and so the idea that corruption is bad is actually pretty fundamental to what you're getting at i think and to mm-hmm. sort of underline why that is if you look at a country like mexico i i i I knew someone from there and they told me what it was like. And basically you would go down the road and then, uh, Los federales would show up and they'd be like, uh, you know, let me see your papers. Uh, mm, this doesn't (laughs) look good. You basically have to hand them like, you know, 200 pesos to get out of that situation. And what that does to you is it basically you're like, okay, this this place is a complete disaster. I can't recoup my investment. I'm not going to invest yes. in this place. I'm not going to develop because it's pointless. Because it'll get stolen, and if things yes. get stolen, you don't plan for the future. I think that's what it, this is fundamentally. Um, that's it. Important, yep. and this is why you know Europe, you know Ice Age people are good at sort of building things is because there's this sort of constant reminder that you need to save. You need to prepare for the future because winter is going to destroy your ability to have food. So you better save. Well, that creates an investment mentality. And that's a good thing. I mean, look at how Norway behaves. They have like one of the largest uh, sovereign wealth funds in the world. And they, they don't behave necessarily the same way as somebody like uh, the Kuwaitis or the Saudis, because it's a hot place, and they don't have winter, And but <laughs> it's, uh, I think there's something to that. Now, how much of that is biology, and how much of that is constitution? I don't know, uh, and I, I think you obviously do need to take into account the biology, and I don't think proprietarianism necessarily addresses that, but I think it's sort of implicitly white, like libertarianism. Is This gets to another question I have for you. Um, libertarianism is basically implicitly white and it has no political power and i would like to hear from you or people like kurt uh, come up with ways to fix that because i mean most of us on this call were are very sympathetic to the ideas of libertarianism the ron paul campaign etc but he's too nice he's too honest and he's going to get plowed over by the deep state just like trump is getting slaughtered and he's not a nice or honest person and he can't even do it and so convince me and convince anybody else who's listening how this is going to be more successful than libertarianism in real politic terms not ideological idealistic terms Mm. but practical terms how do you get this how how do you get it
2: Mm. Yeah. I mean, to me, the heart of, and you guys can tell me if you disagree, to me, the basic heart of libertarianism is, as you were saying earlier, don't take my stuff. (laughs) You know, can we just not steal from each other? Yeah, leave me alone. I won't bother you. Yeah, exactly. And then it goes back to exactly what you were saying about Mexico, and this is something we talk about extensively in libertarianism, is if you can't stop people from taking your stuff or taking each other's stuff in your society— you cannot build wealth because it is literally not worth the investment to try to do it. You might as well just be a parasite like everybody else. So you have to suppress a certain amount of parasitism So uh, before it's even worth it and before you can even hope to build wealth. And Western civilization has done this. And as you said, now the parasitism is just more you, – you use the word subtle. Uh, I would also use the word um, sophisticated. Uh, Because we've suppressed the basic stuff, right? Our police aren't just pulling us over. So um, in in practical, real politics terms, it it comes down to what I was saying before. There has to be a group of men, and I believe the grassroots right has this group of men roughly already, uh, and they're just reaching their tipping point, that just say, enough. We are not going to put up with this, and we're going to do something about it, and we're going to put something better in place. Uh, and then once we do that, it can't be more of this. Uh, to me, libertarianism, one of the faults is it has a lot of kind of wishful thinking. It doesn't have a full enough, you know, I don't want to get into the I- ideological part, but you have to have something that um, is a better reflection of reality to say, how do we maintain this? Uh, and at the same time, you can never take your foot off the gas of we have to have a group of men that defend our stuff. And whether it's you know having our rule of law written better or whether it's us just saying no, whether – Kurt talks a lot about having a militia. That's one of the things I want to interview him about uh, when I talk to him uh, on my channel. Paint a picture for us of how you view the militia. Um, we have to have a group of men that says we're going to be sovereign. We're not going to let people take what we value from us. Uh, And it sounds like a, I don't know if that even sounds like a satisfying answer. It's kind of oversimplistic, but that's at the end of the day what it has to be. And I think the grassroots right, us grassroots right men are roughly all on the same page on the great majority of what we actually want. So I think we're going to be able to do it and the details can be worked out. But uh, there's no way around that. There's no shortcut.
0: I I see this very simply and I'm not going to advocate for this because this is illegal, but... I don't see any other way this works because it's basically you don't pay the taxes that the government, you know, is to, ter- I mean, what was the f- stupid point of the United States? It was like no taxation without representation. That's our situation. So basically
1: an armed need to- insurrection against the federal government over like a, the equivalent of a like dollar per gallon uh, whiskey tax. <laughs> right.
0: And, and look at what happened in France. I mean, it was the same thing. I mean, it was like a really insignificant thing on their little fuel tax. It was a camel that broke the, the uh, piece of straw that broke the camel's back. Yes. I mean, it was not, yep. you know, it had a huge burden, but it was sort of an incremental insult to the people on top of all the other insults. And I, I mean... Every you know every blue state, I mean, it's enacting gun legislation that's more and more resembling California. The censorship is ramping up because they know we're talking online and they don't like it and they don't want us to have any you know say. And uh, I think you got to starve the beast. And I think it also it needs to come to actually a head and a and a catalytic point because if you just, you know, do what sort of a, I talk about a lot is basically just go, you know, grow your own food and stuff. That's cool. But you're basically, you know, in a non-entity at that point. But to, to get ultimate sovereignty, you need to basically say, look, I'm not a U.S. You know, citizen at this point. I'm something else. And I'm with a group of people that I have solidarity with and and principles with, and we're willing to fight to defend our territory. We're not taking anything from you. And that means you're not going to take anything from us. But if you try to take anything from us, we're going to defend ourselves. And I think if you don't have that sort of ready, then this really is all academic because that will force a separation. I think that's what we need to do. And I'm not, again, you can't advocate for this. This is illegal, but there needs to be some catalyst that brings the sort. Do, do you remember when the uh, the Bundy ranch thing? Not the Oregon thing, which was worse, but it was basically the the Bundy thing, where there was all these federal agents. It was ATF or uh, what? What is the the B- B- BLM, the Bureau of Land Management? Not the Black Lives Matter people. They showed up with all their sort of armored vehicles, and the guy had all the SWAT gear on and the sunglasses, and he goes right up to the fence in in this Nevada ranch where this Bundy guy was was raising his cattle. And it pissed people off to the point where there's that famous dude who basically sat on the overpass with his rifle <laughs> pointed right at the damn fence where these guys were lined up ready to burst through the gates. And they, they retreated. They, they retreated. No shots were fired. Thank God. Okay, nobody was hurt. But that was somewhat of a success because there was sort of a moral imperative for people to basically say, I'm not hurting you. You don't hurt me. And if you do, I'm going to defend myself. And that's, I think, how it, it, it sort of begins. And uh, if you don't get that, I, I don't see how this really happens. And and that was a very isolated thing. And I, I think what we need is basically more of that in a way that is actually not crippling because what the, the left and the government and the business elite can do is then they try to demonetize you. They try to crush you financially. And so we need more financial independence. We need more of the sort of like... Core principles that you're talking about, about you know reciprocity. I'm not going to hurt you, but you don't hurt me. And if you do, Malcolm X said this. He said, you know, obey the law, be respectful. But if somebody pushes on you, you put them in the grave. And again, I can't say that legally, but the principle is there. You don't hurt me, and I'm going to defend myself. So, end of my rambling. But there needs to be more <laughs> harder stuff because otherwise, it's libertarianism, and, and that's all I'm saying.
2: Yep, agreed. Uh, and, and just to be clear, I'm not advocating for civil war. I mean, I, I advocate for peaceful separation because as long as the chance is not zero, I'm going to keep advocating for that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you're exactly right. It's, it's, um, uh, it, it can't just be wishful thinking. It can't just be, well, I wish this would happen. And right now the grassroots right is exhausting every option, um, just trying to be patient. And, of course, yep. some segments of the grassroots right are civic nationalists. They're still thinking this is going to be okay. They're going to find out it's not going to be okay. And when that happens, everybody's going to be on the same page. And all the smart people on the right are saying the same thing. Now, you know, as you very eloquently put it, uh, the the way we talk about it is uh, things can't go on the way they are. Um, We're just not going to put up with it. And there's going to be a shakeout at some point.
0: Yeah. And and I'd add, and I brought this example up. We had Sam Dixon on uh, a couple months ago, and I asked him what he thought of the Mormons. And I'm not a Mormon, okay, Uh, but... What I think they have and what they had going for them, because what happened was it was um, I think it was right before the Civil War. Brigham Young was sort of, you know, had his group of people. Um, it could have been after the war. I, I So don't quote me on this exactly. But the, regardless, the, the event that happened was the 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 American uh, cavalry, the army was basically dispatched to break up the Mormons and they were in the Salt Lake region. And if you've ever been to Salt Lake, there's a bunch of mountains surrounding it. It's kind of a, a valley and it's a, it's basically a sea without a, a drain and that's why it's salty. Um, but what they did was, you know, and again, this is before airplanes and everything like that, but, the cavalry was coming through this narrow passage and all the mormons basically they didn't shoot at them okay but what they did was they basically they lined up along the top of the ridge and they basically rolled these boulders down and knocked over the 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 horses to the point where they basically they couldn't go anywhere and they they stopped their advance and what that tells me is that these people are united in a cause they're geographically concentrated they're ethnically you know pretty homogenous uh, and and they're religiously united so th- there's a lot more baked into this DNA of sovereignty I think than just like some kind of dorky you know constitution I mean it's not insignificant but I think you need more you need like mm-hmm. you need some kind of feeling that is simpler and more visceral than something that you you have to articulate in a PowerPoint presentation. I think it has to be you know about blood and, and people and honor and family. And I think if yeah. you don't have that, you're not going to have this because, and that was successful. Okay. And that's what I'm getting at. You need to have really the, the, this kind of more um, cohesive narrative of a people. And that's why, I'm personally more sympathetic to, you know, nationalism and, and things like that because it goes beyond the sort of legalism. I think there needs to be more. But, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm not against, you know, the, the aspects you're talking about, but I, I'm advocating for, you know, more, more mythos around the people uh-huh. as well.
2: Well, I totally agree. And just so I'm not repre- misrepresenting proprietarianism, I mean, Kurt talks all the time about nationalism. And, you know, the ideal way the world would be is basically ethno-nationalism for everybody. You know, you'd have the least conflict, and definitely for whites. And sure. yeah. I view proprietarianism as a a legal mechanism to defend... Uh, you know, nationalism, let's put it that way, for for decades and centuries, you know, if you can keep it working. So absolutely on the same page there. And I agree, I, you know, I, I don't think the main selling point is a constitution. I mean, that's a practical aspect. But the main selling point is we're standing up for our people, we're standing yeah. up for what we believe. And, and uh, I, I think you put it very well.
0: Yeah. Yeah, That gets to people's hearts, and I think that's, yes. that, that's critical. You know, when you're in a uh, firefight, I mean, they say there's no atheists in foxholes, and you have to yeah. be able to have that courage <laughs> to do what you think yes. is right. <laughs> yeah,
2: I mean, I was thinking – I was just sitting here thinking, I mean – everybody on this call may not be on exactly the same page on what the constitution or the law should look like or propertyarianism but i'd fight next to you guys any any day you know because we're all we we all believe in the same things we're all value the same things so um, that's i think the way you put it is really good there has to be a the whole, the whole purpose of all that other stuff is the people
1: uh, what we've got here is
3: Failure to communicate Some men You
0: just can't reach So you get what we had here last week Which is the way he wants Well, he gets
3: I don't like Any more than you Look at your young man
1: your women crying look at your young men dying the way they've always done before look at the hate we're breeding. look at the
0: fear
3: lives we're leading
0: Kennedy, I went numb when I learned to see So I never felt for being there we got the wall of the sea to remind us all That you can't trust
2: freedom when it's not in your hands When everybody's fighting for the promised land, yeah.